0: Welcome to Front and Center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, where awakening
1: people from all sides come together to help write our new story and build upon
0: America's sacred purpose, unity and diversity, while expressing their individual freedom in the context of sacred community. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Maxdenny and Steve Behrman. front and center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. Hello, I'm Michael Maxetti.
2: And I'm Steve Behrman.
0: (laughs) Steve and I are really looking forward to an enlightening conversation, a conversation for possibilities between two dedicated caring individuals, both working to create a better future for us all. The conversation is focused on building healthy communities, building healthy communities starts with building healthy families, and that all starts with healthy healthy people. So let me introduce first A.G. Kawamura. A.G. and I met just over 30 years ago. A.G. was a dedicated community leader doing great work in numerous charities. I quickly learned A.G. was a man of great integrity and respected by everyone who knew him, including myself. A.G.'s bio is far too long for me to, to do justice to it here in our limited time, so I'd just like to ask A.G. to an, a highlight for our audience just a few of your local, state, national, and even global involvements that you have been involved with and contributing to for many years. A.G.?
1: Sure. Uh, good, good day, everybody uh, from Southern California. Uh, I was fortunate to be born into a family that was involved in agriculture here in Orange County at a time when Orange County was really one of the powerhouse uh, agricultural regions of the nation. Uh, Southern California has always been that way because of the great climate here. And so I got involved with uh, agriculture right out of college uh, and uh, was fortunate to kind of be involved in all different aspects from the sales side to the packing and shipping side and uh, export, import side. Uh, but more importantly, got out to the farm fields uh, early in the 80s and um, uh, continued to just try to learn about agriculture, having not studied agronomy and sciences in school. I was a literature major. Uh, that's actually helped a lot. I speak Spanish well, but uh, it means that you have to learn a different way. And uh, my perception for agriculture has been uh, always a steep learning curve, and there's a lot of amazing things taking place in ag agriculture. I've been involved in different industry organizations from Farm Bureau to Western Growers, and then more importantly, we've uh, been working in collaboration with the food bank for over 36 years. I know that because my daughter's 38, and we started uh, uh, a gleaning project uh, about 38, 39 years ago, and I remember that very well, where we were trying to get thrown food that was going to be left over from our harvest, uh, get that to the food bank, and we've progressed on that significantly. And then uh, I was fortunate to work for Governor Schwarzenegger uh, in in a... unexpected uh, appointment into the, to be the Secretary of Agriculture for the state of California from 2003 to 2010. And that uh, helped me open my eyes that agriculture is so much bigger than a, being a fruit and vegetable grower, uh, a green bean grower, I always say, out of Orange County. Um, it's an enormous industry globally. Obviously, when you have now 8 billion people on the planet, it's not an easy task. And I think that position helped me understand a little bit the, in much a much better way how challenging our our, our world is these days. And part of that biggest challenge is also uh, driven by a fact that so many people don't understand agriculture well, as well as they did, say, 40, 50, 100 years ago. Uh, That being said, um, I I work with uh, other organizations locally. We have a group called Solutions for Urban Agriculture, uh, which is our local nonprofit dealing with trying to really, our, our motto is edible landscapes everywhere, so there's hunger nowhere. Uh, we have a group called Solutions from the Land, which is a national organization that has been really in the in the in a center spot trying to address the challenges globally uh, of climate smart agriculture, of agriculture uh, having multiple benefits that it can provide, and that carries on over into international work, uh, both at the climate conference. Uh, I also have been fortunate just recently to be a part of the United Nations Environmental Program uh, as a farmer representative uh, of that that program and uh, that's a relatively new position and I'm uh, I'll be in a steep learning curve on that too so um, I, I'm fortunate to have this broader uh, I guess a broad experience at the global down to the state down to the national then certainly down to the community and down to your local food shed all of those experiences all kind of make a a, a good book of experience if you will so that that would be described me it's a family business still. And uh, I'm still working at it as hard as we can.
0: Thanks, AJ. Steve, you want to introduce uh, Zen for our audience again?
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we had Zen as a guest recently, so I, that's her longer bio. Uh, but Zen Honeycutt is the founder of Moms Across America. Her focus is on healthy communities. And as we know, healthy communities require healthy people, healthy people require healthy food. So, Zen, why don't you just introduce yourself, similar to what AJ did? and offer some of the nuances about about your current work right now and how it evolved.
3: Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm I'm very happy to be speaking with AG, a very distinguished guest. I appreciate that. I grew up in Connecticut uh, and barefoot, a big farm growing food, not farm, but very big garden with animals and all of that. And back then everything was Almost organic. You know, everything, there was no organic label that I knew of. I mean, it was in the early 70s, that maybe it was around then, but my parents just it seemed practically everything that they bought was organic. You know, there was no GMOs in the food supply at that time. I didn't know anybody that had health issues, autism, allergies, autoimmune issues. All my friends could just eat whatever they wanted to. And um, I grew up in Connecticut, and then I moved to California. Had my family there. I lived in Southern California for 20 years. So I do. I'm very aware of the um, the small local farming food movement in specific, particularly San Diego and Southern California that that region. And I became um, the director of Moms Across America, the founder and director of Moms Across America, because all three of my children were very sick. They had allergies, autism, autoimmune issues, things that my husband and I never had. And I learned about GMOs in the food supply and glyphosate uh, around that time when my eldest son was about nine. And when I removed those items from his food, GMOs and glyphosate, he recovered. And so did my other son who had autism symptoms. In about six weeks, he recovered. My other son, the eldest son who had life-threatening allergies, within about a year of going organic, those all went. His symptoms all went away. He his his allergies went from a nineteen, which is threatening, down to a point two, uh, life-threatening. You know, nineteen. And so he's recovered. My ch- child with autism symptoms have recovered. Their aut- allergies to all different kinds of foods. They can now eat them. And during that time, I started Moms Across America, which now has had a reach, uh, it's, in the past five years, it's like 79 million. So we estimate well over 100 million in the past 11 years that we've been around. And I was the consumer representative uh, for the California Secretary of Ag Advisory Committee, the you know, the, the organic products advisory committee for a year and uh, been on uh, various, you know, meetings with EPA, three or four meetings with the EPA now, and in a congressional briefing about glyphosate, we initiated the first glyphosate testing in America, uh, Moms Across America did, we tested and found glyphosate in tap water, breast milk, and uh, our children's urine, found it in my son's urine, and when we removed glyphosate products from his diet and went organic, he recovered. So, I've spoken at the Monsanto shareholder meeting, Dupont, Dow, uh, Syngenta. I've spoken in countries around the world about glyphosate and GMOs, and published a book called "Unstoppable," both in America and Japan. And I work very closely with Japan with the forty-seven uh, prefectures in Japan that are all working to get organic food um, in Japan in the in the schools uh, because the children are being exposed to very high levels of agrochemicals, which are contributing to developmental delays, and they have a lot of data there, that much more data to show that than we do in the United States. So my background was not one to foster getting into the food supply. I I went to Parsons School Design for art and fashion design, Um, but that had had me take a creative approach to problem solving. And when I saw that there was a problem with the food supply when my children were sick and when I removed these things, they got better, I decided to be creative and join into Fourth of July parades. Um, with moms across America. So we did that and we had 179 groups in the first event that I initiated um, and reached thousands locally and millions nationally in a single day. And our moms really became part of the spearheading of the movement to um, push to have more organic food available um, all across the nation. And since then, Because we realized uh, that the government just moves way too slow for our liking and still does not actually label GMOs, they really only need to have a barcode or a a phone number or a, um, uh, well, actually, the the QR code is not going to be allowed anymore. That was struck down by the Supreme Court, but they can have a phone number or a website on there. It doesn't actually have to say made with genetically modified um, organisms, and, and they definitely do not label glyphosate or pesticides on the food. So because they're moving too slow, we've also started the Neighborhood Food Network, which is a program that uh, supports creating national food security one street at a time and supports people on their street to get together with their neighbors and to um, grow food. So we're very excited to focus on solutions. um, But we do continue to put information out there that even though it may seem – scary to people. um, People, we really believe that the consumers have a right to know what's going on in the food supply and that the food supply in America is toxic and it is contributing to a myriad of um, health issues that are compromising an entire generation of children and contributing to over 50% of our adults uh, as well having chronic illnesses. So it's a very serious issue that contributes to all kinds of other issues going on in America, like addiction and homelessness and, you know, all kinds of things. So, um, I'm very happy to be, talk about it and raise awareness about it because there are solutions, and I'm happy to to discuss those as well.
0: Thank you, Zed. Uh, what you've seen here, everyone, is is a unveiling of the perspectives from the the farmer, from the local up, from the food supply side, the the production side, to the to the reality of what uh, moms and families and individuals are living. So we've seen. Now, two very distinct perspectives. And from here, now let's see where we can move to a constructive, positive way we can step forward. Steve, you want to lead us off with a question?
2: Yeah, yeah. I Obviously, we've seen two perspectives in this conversation for possibility. One of them is coming from the, the food grower and the other is coming from the food consumer. So what we have is an issue where we want, not only do we want abundant food, I think everybody agrees that, We want to create as much abundance uh, as we can, make sure everybody is fed. But then there is the question of how healthy our food supply is and uh, what difference that makes. I mean, if we look at some of the statistics uh, about uh, childhood diseases, et cetera, et cetera, as Zan had pointed out, since she was a little girl, things have really changed. So, uh, A.G., would you like to to jump in and, and talk about the... Actual, you know, global farming and what the challenges are, and how one would address what what Zen had said, which is that uh, there's food that, at least in in her perspective, uh, was poisoning her family, and how do we protect people in that regard, and what's the government's role in doing that? Sure. Uh, Let me start by saying there's obvious sensitivity.
1: Uh, especially when you have ch- a child that's uh, unhealthy for whatever different reasons there are. And, and the importance of trying to find those solutions, find out what's happening with the individual is uh, absolutely, we would hope not only with a, a parent, but any government would be engaged and involved with that as well. Because trends are trends, but when the, when the statistics show that something's not right, uh, whether it's fluoride in water, whether it's, um, salt in your diet, whether it's the discovery that lead or asbestos is not good for you, even though they've been building it forever. Um, We recognize, I think everybody has to recognize that uh, mistakes and misjudgments have been made over the course of a long period of time. We talk about DDT and the challenges it it had for the the environment, not so much for the human person as much as for just really messing up aspects of the environment in terms of eggs, uh, the the thinness of the wall of an egg uh, laid by birds as it got into the different biological r- realms of 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 nature um we have to understand there's kind of a driver here uh, i say this all the time uh, uh, we've come a long way in the in the lifespan of a single individual i have a farm friend who's 90 born in 1925 he's 98 this year Um, He just retired two years ago Um, when he was a a teenage boy, young teenage boy. He was still using horses and plows in his fields, and he still remembers the names of those horses. Uh, Fast forward, you have in in 1927, uh, the global census showed there was 2 billion people on the planet. Uh, Just last November, we hit evidently uh, 8 billion people. And I, I think just within the last few months, India now has more people. Uh, as a population than China. Um, two things you have to make an observation. In a world of abundance, uh, all that becomes possible, that we've created tremendous abundance and choices of different kinds of food over the course of this hundred years to be able to go from two to eight billion. There's no one can argue that something was going right within the food supply to allow us to grow that large the elimination of horses and mules and oxen, mostly for uh, and, and displaced by fossil fuel combustion engines, that's a big part of it because you had to grow enough food for all those animals prior to being switched out for uh, the power of a uh, of an engine that has horsepower as opposed to power delivered by a horse. Um, we we know that then we've come a tremendously long way to get to here. I think the most important thing that I can say in this discussion that we're having today is, with abundance, you have choices, uh, and you get to. There, we're in a more of a state of living. But the minute we cross over into a world of scarcity, the minute that agriculture globally or locally is not producing correctly, you start to see your choices start to move away, and we start moving from a state of of living to a state of survival. And in a world of scarcity, that's where I, I think I, I argue so often that. Uh, agriculture needs the support of the populations that are going to eat the food that they food feed and fiber that they utilize that they create, and if the public doesn't quite understand or has misconceptions or has conceptions and good intentions but not quite realizing how quickly uh farmers go out of business because it is a business that we're in, that's where I see some of the jeopardy is where we've got a long uh, steep learning curve to go back to where we were just a hundred years ago where I will guarantee you 70, 80% of the public had a pretty clear understanding what food production was all about, where food came from, how quickly you could get in trouble by a storm or a, uh, a weather event, and suddenly scarcity was on people's minds just because they had uh, experience within generations before. We're in a place right now where only 1% of the American public is engaged in agriculture. So you tell me if 99% of the, or 98% of the American public, is not engaged in agriculture, how do we expect them to understand it? And this is why this conversation with uh, Zen is so important, because she has passion about the food supply. We're really excited about that, uh, having the passion. And we know that we have to improve, and we are improving in in leaps and bounds, in some cases maybe not as quickly as we'd like. But um, let me leave it with that, that abundance is kind of the key piece of this, uh, and having choices so you can choose the food supply that fits you the best is where what where you what you get when you have systems of abundance. And that means many different kinds of ag production systems
2: in play all at the same time. Thank you, A. G. Thanks for that perspective. And that's certainly true. We've gone we've quadrupled the population in just under a hundred years. And obviously we still have the same size planet that we did back then. So uh, that's a factor. So Zen, um you know keeping in mind that there is this issue of feeding the world, and that most people have no idea where their food comes from. How uh, how can how can our uh, how can we uh, influence uh, our governance so that people become more aware of the safety, so that they're making better choices? You know, if, if you look at uh, a lot of people, uh, poor folks used to be. If, if you're poor in the country, then you're growing your own food. If you're poor in the city. You're eating uh, you're eating fast food, you're eating whatever you can eat, and this may not be the best food. Talk about this uh, this conflict between having to grow a lot of food and then having specifically to restore the soil, et cetera, et cetera.
3: Yeah, sure. well, yeah, I'd like to address the growth issue um, first of all, uh, the agrochemical approach that we have, the industrial approach has only been around for less than 100 years. <clears throat> so I understand the whole growth factor, but we want to look at what was happening before then because India and China have the most populous countries um, for a reason. And I would assert that that was because before those 100 years, you know, having the most populous countries, they were eating organic food. They were eating, and they had access to small farms all across their country. They, those are clearly two countries where, there's a movie I think that's called Every 12th Person in the world is a chinese farmer. It's something have you, I don't know if anybody's heard about that it, but it's that type of concept. So in China and in India they had for before, you know, before this industrial um, movement, many more small farms that were feeding that you know, these enormous populations. They did not need Monsanto to come in and tell them how to farm and how to use Roundup and all of that. The the current agrochemical system is a fairly new approach. And yes, it does create a greater yield for the first couple of years, but then it destroys the soil to such an extent that there's nothing else that can really grow there. So there's, you know, industrial corn, GMO corn and GMO soy and sugar beets that can grow with the support of these agrochemicals. Um, and, And our government likes that because they, you know, that's a big industry for our country. And then those big industries donate money to the politicians and keep the whole cycle going, right? The lobbyists and, and all that. So what, what I'd also like to point out is during that period of growth, there's also been an explosion of sickness and what has been sprayed on our foods, crops, and on the soil and the, pe- the pesticides that have been put in and the, and the fertilizers that have put in are contributing to an explosion of things like infertility. Like for, na- for instance, today's young man has a 50% less sperm than his grandfather, the sperm viability. Uh, there's been an enormous increase in in vitro fertilization. For women, there's been um, 54% of people are now obese, and that is directly tied to a lack of nutrients in the food supply. And we have 100 million people in America now with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which has been directly linked with glyphosate, causing uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in rats. There was an animal study that showed at four parts per billion per kilogram per body weight. So very ultra-low levels is what this study actually shows. Ultra-low levels of glyphosate, which is sprayed to the tune of 280 million pounds a year now on our food supply, um, it has is contributes to liver disease. And we now have almost one out of three people in America with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, some of them as children as young as eight years old. So I understand that we need to feed the world. I completely understand that you know, we have a, a population growth But where we're heading with this, uh, the food system the way it is right now, we're heading for a population decline that's going to be so drastic that certain societies will not be able to survive. For instance, Japan is already predicting, and South Korea, their birth rates are below what they need to be to be sustainable societies. So that's why they're developing so many robots, because they can see that in the future they will not be able to take care of their elderly because there'll be so many people sick and the birth rates are, are declining. So what needs to happen, in my opinion, is that governments need to recognize that poisoning our food supply for the sake of having a plentiful food supply is actually, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're causing the same, the very problem that we're trying to solve. And so this whole um, concept of having too many people and having to feed the world uh, with this toxic food supply um, is is actually causing the problem of infertility and miscarriages and chronic illness. Now, along the way, the companies that are making these chemicals are becoming very profitable. For instance, Syngenta makes the largest amount of of, um, pesticides and agrochemicals in the world, and their sister company um, is AstraZeneca, and they have over 400 pharmaceutical products that treat the very same symptoms that they're pesticides and chemicals cause, right? They have over 400 drugs. So they're profiting off of this this cycle of toxic uh, chemicals in the food supply. And it it really, it has to stop. We are, um, there has to be other ways. And there are, there's regenerative organic agriculture. There's more small farms. There's people growing, you know, more food in their local neighborhoods. And and I think it's very, um, it was very evident during COVID with the shipping supply and shortages, that being dependent on foreign sources for food is a very scary situation for every country. That that amping up our access to local food would be extremely wise, especially in places like California where there's water shortages at times. There's you know um, if that port gets blocked up in Long Beach, which I've seen, I used to drive by there all the time. Uh, you know, there there's some very serious um, supply chain problems for the rest of the country. And and so I would argue that, you know, if we're really going to put America first, like Trump wanted to do, we'd, we would be growing more organic food in America and not so dependent on foreign sources. That would be my my first, uh, you know, request of the government to to focus money towards organic food in America and not as much on exporting and supporting the whole toxic GMO uh, export Industry.
0: I'd like to interject something so that we don't. uh, I don't want to see it as a a defense of or attack of whatever. Uh, Ag, you've got this amazing perspective, having been a a third-generation local farmer to now seeing it on the global national levels. I'd have a question that I'd like to ask. Uh, Since local does seem to be a significant. Solution to so many problems because when people are dealing with somebody locally, uh, whether it be in in government or any social services or almost anything, people have a much higher degree of integrity because they're it's their community, their their people, and the, the you saw and and deal with it personally, the the shrinkage of our small farmers and that local connection to the community where the where that integrity lied. Um, what, from your perspective, would you see as a way for us to move more towards local farming with local growers? Is, there, is that a possibility still? What do you see from that?
1: Yeah, I. we, we like uh, to use a saying these days, a lot of us that uh, I get to work with is that we're kind of through with the think tank. We don't like the think tank, we like the do tank. We like to get things done. <clears throat> And, you know, how many more (laughs) how many more studies do you need to have to say that a kid that has a lousy diet uh, and shows up at school hungry because he didn't eat from or she didn't eat since last Friday? Um, Why do we need to do studies? Why do we need to spend so many resources talking about what needs to change and what needs to happen? We know what where we can, what what is uh, possible uh, in terms of transformative change why don't we just get that done? And so uh, I think that's a part of what's happening, the, the enormous disruption uh, from COVID, the from the pandemic. It, it could have been so much worse, as we know. The, the pandemic could have been a much more deadly kind of an outbreak, and we still have that fear that any day another kind of uh, avian influenza or some kind of AI or uh we were worried about Ebola once upon a time a little bit less now but it it hasn't become contagious like some of these other uh, pathogens do um but that disruption uh global disruption of the uh, the the global food supply all the way down to the local soup food supply was like nothing we had ever seen nothing we'd ever planned for and yet you at least need to acknowledge that the nimbleness of the global food system all countries because they were all dealing with this to basically turn and pivot and re uh re 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 redirect i guess how uh, they were going to get food to uh, the consumer um, was pretty remarkable we had our enormous struggles in our country with uh, food deserts when the areas that really were out of food as opposed to just didn't have the choices for food um, but the ability for the ag industry to pretty much show up and um, uh, create, uh, because of the that sense of abundance, create new pathways was, was critical. And one of those pathways that has really emerged was that return to uh, support for your local food providers, your local food system, uh, regional food shed uh, people. And you saw great support coming in for farmers markets, great support for the local growers, the roadside stands, uh, the agricultural small farm um, producers that are plugged into their communities. And you saw people really appreciate the fact that they do want to understand uh, where they can um, access food uh, with people they know, people they can see, people they can visit. Uh, and, and that's an incredibly important for the global food system as well as our system here in the country. At the same time, uh, I've said this many a time, you know, whether it's a rooftop garden, or, or, or some of these different raised uh, beds uh, production systems in urban ag, in right in the middle of the cities, those are all important pieces that augment the food, the general food supply. But you can't feed a world from a, a rooftop. You can't feed everybody from those. You know, this, we're talking billions of people that need to be fed. And so, the transforma- the transformation of our food system is happening as we speak. And There's so many different avenues where people can, uh, because we're all going to eat, redirect their resources, redirect their attentions to support those food systems that uh, basically um, deliver the demands both psychologically and physically of a food system that we we can appreciate. One thing I want to say that's I think as important as ever is to at least acknowledge that when we're trying to talk about feeding the world in Africa, it's 90%. In Asia, it's over 80%. In India, it's somewhere into 80%. In our Midwest, it's 80%. Of all the agriculture is rain-fed. It happens because we get the weather right. We get enough rain, not too much rain, not a, or, or not enough or, or, or not too little rain. But our global food system is rain-fed. And then the other part of that I think is really important for Zen, for you to make sure when you are speaking, is the fruit and vegetable industry is mostly irrigated agriculture, one. The fruit and vegetable industry is um, not the grain industry, and they just have a different set of rules and regulations and and actually tools that we use. Um, Now, in many cases, you know, you realize that to produce um, a crop of wheat or a crop of uh, 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 soy or corn or millet or the different grain crops – Uh, It's just, it's such a different part of how agriculture uh, is conducted that we all, we have different, let me put it this way, we have a different toolbox that we all need to utilize to get our our result. We will always invest, farmers will invest in anything that gives them greater predictability of, of a good harvest and that's kind of where we've been all along and I don't whether you're an organic grower I I've, I've been both conventional and organic every time someone comes along with a better tool that you can use um to make your more predictable your harvest uh, and more successful obviously um we're we're all about that and we're we're desperately looking at for new tools constantly to replace some of the tools we've been using for years and years and sure enough it's uh when i say that we're in a ag- agricultural renaissance period right now believe me we really are it's just unbelievable how many new tools are available to us right now and that's tools techniques uh engineering um uh, both uh old indigenous knowledge as well as brand new stuff it's all part of the the the, the knowledge page that we get to uh, uh get online here now and you can see why people were doing things 10,000 years ago, why would people were doing things up in the Andes, why uh, different successful ag systems were there, but also the sobering thing about why so many systems collapse. And part of it is comes with all kinds of challenges that we may have time to talk about a few of those today, but r- recognize that those of us who irrigate crops, we live in a slightly different world than those that just hope it rains and they have a good rain season or a good, mo- good monsoon.
3: Yeah, can I can I add to that? I I was glad that A. G. mentioned the indigenous, um, you know, ha- traditions because when I was in Japan talking uh, about you know promoting my book and talking about the food supply, I, I met with the former minister of agriculture, um, Mr. Yamada-san, and and I mentioned the whole movement of regenerative organic agriculture in the United States and how it's you know u- utilizing cover crops and animals grazing and. And all of that. And uh, he said, yeah, we we've been doing that for thousands of years. You know, he laughed. He, he was like, it's like a new thing in America. It's not new in Japan. And, uh, you know, there's natural Korean farming. There's all kinds of methods that are used. I've been to Maui and seen all kinds of, uh, you know, farming there that that is uh, very effective and abundant and has incredible yields. And if anybody's grown even one zucchini plant, they know they're going to have enough zucchini for their whole street you know, food (laughs) is abundant. If food is natural, you open up a a, a pumpkin, one pumpkin for Halloween, and you have hundreds of hundreds of seeds. Food is when it grows naturally, it's naturally abundant, right? When you're not messing with the seeds and changing it so that the seed can't reproduce every year, you have to buy new seeds every year and pay 375% higher um, uh, technology fee for a GMO seed. When you have heirloom seeds, you know they produce food abundantly. It's just a matter of supporting the communities to grow more food. So I was really glad they mentioned um, looking at traditional and ancient ways because when you look at how you know food was traditionally grown, it was quite abundant. and I would assert that's one of the reasons why we do have such a populous um, world and and uh, and that those methods are going to continue to have us be um, healthy and populace in ways that you know will work for society as well
2: you know i i love that uh each of you has has an eye on something that can be growing something that's that's positive and can be growing and also uh noticing uh, the possibility of disaster i mean if if for some reason our food systems fail then uh doesn't matter how healthy you are starvation simply doesn't work so that that nobody wants that to happen
3: can I add bye, bye. on? To, yeah. Can I add quickly? Yeah. So I went to the um the Norman Borlaug dialogue in um in Iowa one year. It's it's like a GMO love fest, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's really uh you know, it's really a, a I felt like a a tiger swimming swimming in a shark tank. There, right? I was the only. I went by myself, and I would go into these seminars, and they were talking about GMO bananas, and they would have the leaders of in, in Africa, right, the, of Malawi, like the president of Malawi, and and uh, female leaders of of um, different regions in Africa. I don't remember all their names, but and they were talking about things like growing GMO bananas because there was some type of plague there, and how important it was to have these GMO bananas. And I just asked a question. I said. Well, I'm just wondering, instead of growing these GMO bananas for a season or two because of this certain pest or, or fungus or whatever it is, have you considered maybe growing sweet potatoes instead? And they all looked at me like I was speaking some kind of foreign language. And what I, what I think is missing sometimes is just the common sense, you know, approach to perhaps switch the crop out or to grow something in a different way or to let the, that field lay fallow for a while like our ancestors would have done. And to take a different approach, and so I think that is what is what is needed and you know they, and they were no, they were very offended they didn't want me to get to the front they didn't want me to talk to other people. Um, they actually in the big room where they had um, Monsanto and Google and the Bill and Ga- Melinda Gates Foundation and Starbucks and Dow and DuPont, like all of these very large corporations that are controlling the food supply and really manipulating how the direction of the ag industry in many ways, they took away the microphone so that I could not get up and speak and confront them with their methods of, of, um, you know, growing food. Uh, And they made everybody just submit by Twitter instead because they didn't want to hear from the consumers and their concerns about safety. So I think what needs to happen is there really needs to be more of a common sense approach in some ways, and many of that are the indigenous ways that AJ mentioned that we can that we still have we still have those resources.
2: I want to uh, bring up something related to choice, and you sort of hinted at it uh, then, and that is that if it, there seems to be a uh, a monoculture, a, a food monoculture, that also uh, is involves our food, uh, uh, the food how food gets advertised. Uh, I just read that uh, there is a big deal between craft. Uh, Providing lunchables for school lunch programs. So clearly, um, you know, if we're, if we're looking at a bur- you know one burgeoning disaster could be lack of food. Another burgeoning disaster could be inability for a society to function because there's too many sick people. You know, if you look at the, the expansion of autism, let's say, uh, at what point we have to take care of these people, you know, all their lives. At what point? Do our resources have to be turned to caring for uh, caring for the sick rather than having having a well society that, that's kind of like a healthy community? So I'm looking at that as a uh, at what point, And I might ask this to A.G., What is the government's responsibility and the media's responsibility uh, in the fact that people are given limited choices? They're being uh, you know the the advertising is primarily to promote. Um, you know, th- this industrial food system rather than support this burgeoning local system that can augment that. Uh,
1: I, I think the perspective that you pre- present there is, is coming from a, 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 a point of observation where uh, the industrial system is arguably, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, is not good. Other systems are better. How how would we transform this, the the agricultural global ag systems today into something I guess more acceptable or more more sustainable? But that's making an assumption that the global large systems that we have today are not sustainable. Um, and I think you know I think everybody would want to hope and wish and pray that, no, uh, we, we want the global systems to be sustainable because without sustainability, um, we have zero resilience. We have no way to uh, thrive into the future. We'll be in, we will be in a world of survival, and that's not a good option. I think you mentioned a little while ago, survival and, and starvation is, not a, is, is, is an end result. It's a consequence of, of, of crop failure uh, on a large scale or on a little scale. Um, and whether you look at the way... Any country starts to use have its government support its agricultural systems. Whether it's the uh, the common agricultural policy in 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 Europe, whether it's the farm bill in Cal in United States, whether it's um, the different systems in Japan. Um, those countries that remember what it's like to be uh, out of food China, Japan in 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 a, in a less than a half centuries, memory banks, um, uh, Korea of course, um, Europe different parts of Europe at different times, Um, that memory drives a lot of why this global food system has never been more vibrant, never been more effective at producing calories. Now, uh, we haven't started talking about nutrient-dense calories, which is as important as anything we can say today, is when we talk about global diet, uh, we have the capacity to feed everybody on the planet um, uh, calories that can keep them alive. Uh, we also have the capacity, but we don't have the will or the imagination to actually to to do that. But we don't have the will or the capacity also to make sure that it's nutrient dense calories that are getting to every single citizen on the planet. Um, that would be the goal that is achievable. That's the goal that's uh, in 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 view right now, especially because of COVID and because of the pandemic. We saw that the global ag system can be very flexible and nimble. It can pivot and turn. Uh, the project we have, for, for example, right now where we're producing uh, 40,000, 50,000 pounds of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables for the food bank uh, that they're, they are, have invested in and have contracted different growers to grow um, uh, because they want nutrient-dense foods to be able to be available for those most in need. What a great concept that is, this idea that those most in need get the best food. Uh, and I would encourage Zen and, and all of the people that listen to you on a regular basis, start looking at that solution set where you can quickly realign resources in any food shed, in any area, and put food into a food bank, into food pantries, soup kitchens, into the schools, coming right out of your local school systems, and make those available year-round because you can go indoors as well or under under. Hoops and different things. Now there's different available technologies to be year round, even in cold climates. But this idea: of what are we trying to accomplish on the planet? I think what we're trying to accomplish, every government, is they want their public to be happy. The, you know, their their citizens to be healthy. They obviously they want them to be fed because if they're not fed, you have riots and you have dissension and you and that uh, descends into chaos. But if you if you at least make the observation, of what's possible for us? In our lifetimes, I can see, again, mostly because of uh, the disruption that took place with the pandemic, I used to think it was going to be really hard to accomplish uh, the goal of ending hunger on the planet, but I always knew it was possible. Uh, Today, I know it's more probable and possible than ever, and I think it's more achievable than ever, even by the year 2030, because we have the capacity to do it, and we just haven't had the will and imagination to do it. And this kind of a discussion that we're having, where we think maybe we're at odds because um, Zen and, and Zen, you you have identified certain tools that you you're not happy with, or you're really alarmed about actually, and you'd like to uh, eliminate them. Um, I'd be the first to say that that's a difference of opinion. We certainly can share, but more importantly, is I think we share the same common goals of what are we trying to do to make a vibrant, healthy uh, citizenry, and that obviously has to do with nutrient dense, good food. Choices, good food consumption, and to see the challenges. I mean, to to see the breakthrough uh, observations that you've had in your own family and many others who uh, basically realize that a diet, a good diet, really helps lead to health. That food is medicine is not a new new concept. It's an ancient concept, and yet we did kind of wander away from that for a better part of a half a century. Um, But as we come back to this realization that. What we put in our bodies is is really critical. Um, that goes back to having choices, and to, the, it's important to recognize that the 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 responsibility of a parent, the responsibility of a of an adolescent, the responsibility of children to understand that what they choose to eat has a lot of impact on them. Um, we can by our own choices ch- change what what the, is available in the stores and in the uh at, at the farms as well uh, mo- most of us would argue our consumption of things like kale sweet potatoes uh um, um dates in my case out here has gone up not 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 a hundredfold not, i mean not double that's only a hundred percent increase my consumption of some of these things from um uh, brussels sprouts for example has gone up maybe tenfold that's a thousand percent right In the last five, five, six years, I think all of us have seen changes in our diets because suddenly people recognize that those are really great foods um, that actually taste fantastic as well. But I think it's important, really important to say um, that the production cycle uh, is always vulnerable. It's vulnerable to pests. It's vulnerable to weather. It's vulnerable to um, uh, supply chain. Suddenly your tractor part doesn't show up. And we don't have horses, so. But even then, if if the tractor stopped in the field and you can't get your job done, you better hope the guy next door has a tractor you can borrow, uh, or, or all, all the all the above becomes into play. That it's such a complex system, it's hard to simple uh, to to reduce it to simple simple places where you think one change is going to alter the way the whole how we feed ourselves. But you have to start someplace. So I, I think it's important that. The work that you're doing, Zen, is, is critical. The work that I know that uh, the groups that I'm working with, we have that same passion for we, we want to be here. We want to see uh, um, resilience in the face of challenges that we've never seen before, but also in the face of challenges that are old, as uh, old as the day we altered the environment to create an agricultural food supply. Um, we, there are things that want to eat us. They want to eat our food. They want to eat our animals. Uh, nothing's changed. You know, it's, it's that that part of the conflict we have with uh, trying to uh, harmonize ourselves with nature is some of the greatest challenges and, uh, and opportunities we face. And that's why we hope we have better tools than we've done in the past to get to where we are today.
0: A.G., I'd like to uh, suggest you've made a, a couple, a lot of, of important statements there. Most important to me is how do we pivot? You know, uh, America in particular, how do we pivot and to get the will to make healthier choices the outcome rather than just providing the calories? Our country is gone down to the bottom of the industrialized world on every health measure you can probably come up with. Um, and so here in America, How do we pivot our government so that we can get the will to create those healthy nutrient rich foods that get to the people instead of allowing the kind of production that we've experienced in the last growing significantly over the last 40, 50 years, particularly the last 20 years, you mentioned, you know, about the responsibility of choices, but when we are dominated in an an era of Overwhelming marketing advertising that sells and promotes the consumption of all of this junk food that provides calories at the detriment of our health and our government, which you said most governments all want their people to be healthy. That's the stated position. But the result of what we have in America is a government that has blindly looked the freaking other way with their handout to Big Ag and the pharmaceuticals and the rest of them, while we've watched the health of our people dramatically deteriorate. You mentioned food islands and we have food islands, but the unfortunate reality there is if they don't have access to quality food, the only food they do have access because of their inability to buy quality food or even have access to it, is nothing more than calories that is poisoning them. So where do we, how do we get, How do we pivot to to accomplish what you've dedicated your life to, which is creating nutrient-rich, good, healthy food, helping provide for people with the gleaning and all the things that you've been working on in your life? But now how do we pivot to get the will in America to focus on the health of our people rather than the profits of the companies that produce the most calories? And like the example of craft food and wanting to provide the crap that our kids would eat that is poison them versus providing them the kind of things that you and I worked on with Sage Hill and Laguna Beach schools to get the schools to provide healthy food, not junk food. How do we get that will? How do we make that pivot?
1: Well, I'd like to think that what I mentioned earlier about just how our diets have, let's say just the last 15, 20 years, um, the availability of uh, salads uh, at fast food locations. The availability of um, something as different as um, sweet potato fries. Uh, that might not be a good example, but um,
0: that's one we both like. <laughs>
1: but I, I, my my thought is there's it's twofold. Um, fruits and vegetables are perishable by, by nature, right? You can't store them unless you. Ah, uh, process them somehow into a place where you're either frozen, or or freeze dried, or hermetically sealed in some things, Because we still have to deal with food, uh, food, food poisonings, right? With uh, contamination of food from pathogens, contamination of the food from the from chemicals and the industrial side of chemical side of things. Um, there's been a constant, constant um, push from governments to try, and, and I, I mentioned asbestos, I mentioned lead. Currently we're dealing with all of us that grew up in the 70s uh, with Teflon pans, evidently now we're dealing with a, a, some, a group of chemicals called uh, long-chain uh, carbon chemicals, PFOS and PFOS are an example, and at parts per trillion, not parts per billion, not parts per million, parts per trillion, they're showing that they're they're problematic for the human body, and now so you have to try and figure out how do you get the human body to react uh, towards being able to process these things and move them out of your system and stay healthy, that goes back to your gut, that goes back to having your soil the the, the microbes in your in your body inside your stomach gut, as well as uh, some ability to introduce them uh, to try and get better balance. All of those are parts of the solution set that only has only emerged in these last 10, 20 years. And arguably it's been there for 30, 40, 50 years, but it's now starting to become a little bit more mainstream. And I think I understand that patience is not something that is easy when a decade flies by and you just go, God, just a decade ago I was I was drinking X amount of sugar drinks and now I don't drink them. But what happens in the course of a decade when you don't do that anymore? What happens when you eliminate certain amounts of uh, sodium from your diet because you really like salty things, but you realize that they're uh, not as healthy. There's so much information out there, but I think, Mike, what you're uh, referring to is how come so many people um, don't listen to the information that is available and don't change their lives, whether it's trying to exercise, whether it's um, trying to... um, Eat less. I'm I'm a perfect example of. I wish I was a little lighter than I was uh, than I am today. But that is. Do is there anybody to blame for that? No, but me. Yeah, of course. There's someone to blame. It's me. Um, I I would be the first to say that in addressing how do you get the governments of this world to kind of turn and pivot, if you will, and focus on some of the key things that we we want we that are that our highest priorities, let's say it's children, is our highest priority. We have uh, ability to, uh, and we've you've seen it starting to happen, uh, how do you change the school lunch program? Uh, if kids are going to eat a, a significant amount of their calories at, at the schools, um, how important it is to have nutrition education, how important it is for the medical community to have nutrition education in addition to whatever specialty area they have. Um, nutrition has is, is been overlooked for so many years because the thought was, I think, oh, we have plenty of calories. Um, how great that is. We shouldn't have to worry so much, but we kind of lost our, our focus on um, what, what kind of a nutrient package is each person eating every single day. Uh, and, if you've wandered away from that or you don't even have any clue that what you eat every day has an impact on your health, um, then you're, you're you're either you're not listening because you're not seeing on TV, on, on every place that exists. There's been a lot of discussion and dialogue about improving the diets for people on the planet. Um, when you look at India, when you look at China, ask them what is their focal point on right now. As much as I think they would love to have nutrient-dense foods in abundance so there's significant choices for everybody their hugest concern is right now can they keep the resources available to them to be able to feed their populations um and, and you see that they're moving around the country around the world trying to get those resources tied up so that their food supply we talk about food chain and supply chain that they they're not going to find themselves out of food uh because of a huge drought because of a huge cycle cyclone uh, you know, sets of cyclones uh, that that come and wipe out entire regions. Uh, the uh, locu- the loc, the locust plague that you saw in Africa was just it was enormously um, devastating for those states that had to go through that. Uh, and so, what tools do you have to stop a locust plague? What's what you know? These are all. Dust, well, I like dust to focus on situations. on America,
0: which is where we can be, where we are. I see, you know, you have. The global perspective, but in our country, well, what are the things that will help well, us pivot to get the will because uh,
1: here's here's an observation it. i would I would make um how how horrible it is if we have to wait for a crisis to change certain aspects about how we deal with our food system, so we were in a drought in California, a significant drought, and if it wasn't for this last year of enormous uh, beneficial and devastating rains. We get to push a pause button and rethink, is our infrastructure adequate uh, for delivering water to all areas of our state, not just for the public, but also for the agricultural systems that exist? Is uh, the Colorado going to refill itself? If not, what are those enormous questions that we have to ask? And if suddenly the, the Western United States is not producing, let's say, drops by 30 40% what it's able to produce because of a water problem, uh, where is that going to get picked up in the rest of the United States? Uh, where is it going to get picked up in the, in the, in in those state those countries that depend on us to export food as well? Um, it's pretty clear we'll take care of ourselves as a country for the most part. But um, these shifts of, of food production are one of the greatest challenges we have. So the, I, I know those are you know the sixty thousand foot forty thousand foot actually it's the one thousand foot level for me because you know we were lucky that we didn't go underwater because we were a flooding river this year um, when you're out of business, let me circle back to the one thing that kind of doesn't get mentioned here in our country agriculture is a business is it's an absolutely is a business so whether you're a roadside stand producer whether you have a, a agritourism and you have depend on people to come and visit you uh, whether you're the biggest uh, producer of uh, eggplant in the world, or whatever the product you have, um, the business model that you have is that you can't be losing money year after year because of, uh, first of all, because of poor production levels caused by insect pests, caused by uh, rots and, and and viruses and bacteria that will come in and attack your food system. You can address those organically, and the tools you have now are better than ever because they're, the, the, the marketplace is demanding them, more and more better biological tools, tools, more and more thinking around what you're trying to accomplish. We're not trying to kill every bug in the field anymore. We're trying to just uh, eliminate those target bugs that are would devastate your crop. So what we, what we have to understand is that the farmer making decisions, big and small, is willing to invest in things that give him a better chance to get his crop to market. But once he gets his crop to market, there's no guarantee that he can sell it and sell it efficiently because if the markets are oversupplied by sweet potatoes, guess what? There's no market for sweet potatoes, and unless the government swoops in and buys a whole bunch of it to prop up uh, the farmers that overproduced, which is exactly what we have in our country— the government swoops in and buys up surplus so that those growers don't go out of business. And now that we're down to one or two percent of the farmers, let's say we double up and go to two percent, or double up uh, by another fifty percent and go to two and a half percent of the population growing food. It's it's it, it, and we have a huge explosion. I hope of small small production uh, farmers in in our regions that are probably not growing wheat, corn, or soy. They're probably growing uh, multiple crops of vegetables. Fruits and vegetables and livestock as well. Um, there's some really neat models that are being scaled up and replicated in that that category. And and I think they're doing some of them are doing great. But the minute you have too many of those kind of producers, even in a small town in small county, they start competing against each uh, other for that dollar that exists there. And I just wanted to say that the business of agriculture. It, 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 yes, we could go to a system. I guess like in in Korea or North Korea or. Cuba or, no Cuba doesn't count because they have wonderful backyard gardens, right uh, for, the, for the populations. But uh, um, China, where you have a, a control system by the government's farming and, and telling everybody how to farm, where to farm, what to farm, uh, and, and hoping that works, uh, or the system we have, the business of agriculture, whether it's state-run or privately run, um, we can't lose sight of that because ultimately the last thing you want to see is all your growers going out of business. And when we have huge impacts, whether it's water being taken away from farmers so they can't farm, whether it's too much rain and it's flooding, and they're now they're out of business because they just lost an entire year's worth of crop because of too much rain, how many seasons can they sustain themselves with those kind of disasters? That's what we're up against. And that's what I think we get very little sympathy, very little understanding. More importantly, very little support from the public in general, who kind of recognizes that farmers are important, but at the same time, kind of sometimes is throwing a rock at them.
3: Can I can I speak to the the question about the? Well, I want to address the, the climate change issue and what you just mentioned as far as the uh, the public not understanding what's going on with the farmers. I think that from what I've seen by talking to dozens of farmers and being on email chains with dozens of farmers and hundreds of scientists and food movement people uh, around the world, that uh, what's being uh, shown to be true is that when farmers switch to regenerative organic agriculture, which is not sustainable, you mentioned sustainable. Sustainable is when things stay the same, right, when the soil and the uh, economy and the agriculture can continue to be sustained. It's on a it's like a plateau. Regenerative is when the soil improves. It's when the yield improves. It's when um, you know this the entire system for farming improves. And when you look at creating a regenerative organic system, which is the opposite of the current industrial agriculture system, that soil is more resilient to drought. That soil has more organic matter. It, can, it it preserves more water. You know this as a farmer. It, it obtains more water. Those cover crops up, retain more water. We become more resilient to that climate change that uh, is being predicted and has been shown to be happening around the world. I know farmers that have had those crickets that wiped out their kamut wheat, uh, you know, Corazon wheat in, in the Midwest, and they've had rains and hail. And you know, I, I totally understand what you're talking about there. Um, but the, the current agri- industrial agriculture system destroys the soil and makes it more susceptible to climate change and also contributes to climate change, frankly. All of the, you know, the um, GMOs and the chemicals and the way that it it uh, depletes the soil and retain the water retention and all of that, it contributes to the climate change impact. So that's a really important factor. They have to see that at some point you asked how do we switch the government, right? How do we get the government to switch over to address these issues of health through farming? It's policy. And we need to get politicians in office that won't get bought out by big ag and be swayed by these lobbyists. And they will do. They will enact um, uh, EPA members and FDA members that will actually uh, install common sense policy. And if I could address these for a moment. One of the major loopholes that we had is that the FDA from the very beginning declared that GMOs were a process, not an additive, even though you can test the food and detect GMOs in the food supply. The same thing with pesticides. The pesticides are a process, not an additive. Therefore, they do not need to be labeled. They do not need to be safety tested in the same way as AGU you just mentioned salt quite a bit. Salt is labeled on on a product. Glyphosate, which is clearly contributing to liver disease, cancer, kidney disease, endocrine disruption, Atrazine turns male frogs into hermaphrodites or homosexual or asexual. I mean, there are so many different chemicals. There's over 1,200 endocrine-disrupting chemicals that are allowed in our food supply that our food our, our food regulatory agencies are not being responsible for governing. For instance, when I was a, a representative on the California Organic Advisory Board, which only advised the Secretary of Ag, which you were on, this was before you were, after you were on uh, as the Secretary of Ag, But I was on the committee, I think it was about 2017, and I was completely dismayed to see that the California Department of Food and Agriculture and the U.S. EPA, uh, Department of Agriculture, or FDA, sorry, the U.S. FDA, were only testing for three out of the top 25 most widely used pesticides and herbicides that are used in our food supply. And they would come to the Organic Advisory Board you know, for California, for the Secretary of Ag, and they would say, oh, we tested 1,200 different samples, and 98% of them were below the allowable levels right, for pesticides. And, and those allowable levels, first of all, are ridiculously high. For instance, glyphosate, they allow 30 parts per million of glyphosate on wheat. That's 30,000 parts per billion. You just mentioned parts per trillion, which has been shown in different chemicals to cause harm. We know that about glyphosate as well. And so the levels that are allowed in our food supply, first of all, are ridiculously high. And then second of all, they're not even testing for the majority of the pesticides and herbicides that are allowed to be used on our food supply. And then we wonder why our kids are getting sick and they allow this type of toxic food, such as Lunchables and GMO corn and GMO soy in the food supply um, in our schools. It's because there's a lack of regulation. And we tested 43 school lunch samples recently and found that 95.3% of them were positive for glyphosate. That's much higher than what's being, what's being found just in the conventional grocery store. Only 60% of the samples that the Detox Project tested were found to be positive for glyphosate in the regular conventional grocery stores. And, um, and 74% of them were positive for at least 29 different other, uh, one, one of 29 different other harmful pesticides. Um, several of them were positive for very high levels of veterinary drugs and hormones um, level, you know, the types of drugs and hormones that cause for instance, cows to lactate. And I have a um, high school counselor friend that said she had a 15 year old girl come in her office and cry because in the shower that morning she started lactating. This girl was not pregnant. She was not any kind of birth control or hormone pills. Her body was just lactating. And I believe this is because she's consuming you know, drugs and hormones that cause lactation in her school lunches. A hundred percent of these school lunch samples were very high uh, in heavy metals over almost six. uh, They were actually 6,923 times higher than what the EPA allows in drinking water. So the heavy metals in the food supply are um, astronomical and are definitely contributing towards um, developmental disorders you know, learning disorders. Which we have now, one out of six of our children now have a learning disorder. That those are very high numbers, and um, and then they, of course, were abysmally, you know, low in nutrients. I'm glad you mentioned nutrients because um, that is something that is of grave concern. And I know I'm talking a lot, but I have to get this this story out there because uh, it's so important. There, there was a. There was a study in Germany on hamsters in a, on a farm that the population of hamsters was declining. this was in Smithsonian Magazine when I first found out about it. And um, it was University of, University of Strasbourg that studied it. There was a professor there, um, Mathilde, um, I forgot their last name. But uh, the scientists studied these hamsters and found that the hamster population was declining because the mothers were eating their young on the first day of life. And when they tested those hamsters, which were living in a GMO monocrop cornfield, so we all know what that means, that means GMO, right, um, With sprayed with pesticides, these, these hamsters have, were completely void of one vitamin, vitamin B3. And when they administered the vitamin B3, the cannibalism completely stopped, this violent behavior completely stopped. And so the question that I want to pose to anybody that's influential in the food supply, you or anyone else is what if the violence that's happening in our country, what if the, the behavioral issues that are going on in our country are, can be contributed to a lack of maybe even just one vitamin, right, that's, that's devoid in people because of the lack of nutrition in our food supply. And what if we could rectify that by simply growing healthy food and people consuming healthy food? I, as a mother, I see the health of our children and the health of our nat- nation and the future of our nation as a priority, not just like, hey, let's get, you know, calories into people. It's, it's got to be, let's get nutrients into people. And that's the shift that I hope more people are talking about is, as you mentioned, nutrient dense food, That that is an urgent situation. And, and even the Department of Defense, Defense says that the school lunches are a national security issue because- I I believe it's only like 19% of the children, I mean, the young adults that apply to be in the military are eligible now. They're too obese. They have too many mental health issues. They have too many autoimmune issues. We have a 40%, I think, capacity of our military because uh, our young people are not healthy enough. And so it is a national security issue and therefore it's a global security issue because America is a superpower um, for us to revert to a healthy food system. And it starts with policy. It starts electing with officials that won't be bought out. And it starts with making common sense decisions and funding, instead of funding GMO monocrop cultures and agrochemicals being used our food supply, funding farmers to switch over to regenerative organic agriculture, where toxic chemicals are not used, and the support of organic matter in the soil is fostered.
1: If we have a few minutes left, I'd, I'd sure like to just respond to some of what you just said um, please, agent. as an observation. Um, most all farmers, um, especially the farmers that own their own properties, of course, or are, are able to say they're going to be on the same piece of ground for a long time. Um, there's never a, a situation where you want to see a farmer deplete the land so that he eventually has to walk away and, and abandon it. And so this idea that regenerative ag- agriculture, agriculture only uh, and regenerative practices only exist in certain kinds of uh, organic farmers or, or, you know, or biodynamic farmers, it, I, I'd be the first to say is, is not true whatsoever. In fact, some of the biggest producers in the country and in the world, that's all they focus on is soil health and the ability to restructure and reinvigorate uh, the biology, biology in, in your soils is some of the biggest stuff taking place these days, whether it's bringing green waste in from the urban stream, whether it's uh, working with your uh, other annual animal producers to b- bring in manures uh, that are com- combined with your green waste, whether it's no-till, whether it's making sure that you've got land- ground that's um, increasing in its biology, beneficial biology, not negative biology. Um, that's happening uh, at a scale that is really pretty much unprecedented based upon the way we moved away from it for many many years um the 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 the
3: It's good to the, hear.
1: The, and you should be able to celebrate that as opposed to I, I, here's a good example um I, and I, I'm not a Pollyanna believe me I'm a pretty pragmatic kind of guy um maybe I'm a, a optimistic pessimist uh or a pessimistic optimist but um you can look at the world with a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of lens, right? Um, and I like to say that if you know what's in the picture that you're pouring from, if you're pouring fear into a picture, yeah, the world looks pretty bleak. It looks like an end of days. It looks like the world's heading in a horrible direction. But if you're pitch- pouring from a picture of, of possibility, of potentiality, and more importantly, hope that we are moving along a spectrum from Bad practices to better practices from misunderstanding to understanding. If you believe that, and we believe that this, whether you call it a renaissance or a new age of mankind, is we're on the precipice of that, it does take a belief uh, that there is more hope that things are getting better. And we have to encourage that uh, improvement in every category ever, uh, every category we have, taking responsibility as parents, for example, to make sure that your kids aren't eating. Whatever you th- shove down their throats because it's convenient. We know that there's con- good, convenient, healthy foods becoming uh, onto the marketplace every single day. We know by going to different stores, it's amazing what you see on the shelves compared to what we saw just 20 years ago. Let alone 50 years ago. I, I keep on talking about what happens in the course of a, a a single man's lifespan, where you got a guy, you know, with a team of horses, and now you got a, a, a someone walking on Mars pretty soon here. you know. It's, it's, it's hard not to be impatient with the progress of mankind um, because we've certainly failed for 30,000 years, evidently, to have uh, a really peaceful uh, planet, right? We, we, what we think is possible is we leave the 20th century behind, which has been filled with a lot of horrible, horrible, catastrophic mistakes and, and perceptions and, and ways of thinking uh, I, I love the look at the Sustainable Development Goals. Some people are afraid of those sustain, Sustainable Development Goals as unachievable over ambitious, but when you look at the, the SDGs that the United Nations came out with, 17 goals, and you look at, in a second you look at them all and you say, well, if we were to achieve these by the year 2030, which is what they originally planned, and now people are saying, oh no, we'll have to wait till 2050, but you would recognize the world would be forever changed. We would live in a different world if we achieved those uh, sustainable development goals. I I know you're familiar with those goals, uh, Zan, and I don't know if you talk about them much. Just number one and number two is deals with poverty and hunger. And actually number three, deals with uh, healthy bodies, healthy citizens. Um, You recognize, and and another one deals with waste on the planet, dealing, getting, moving waste into into circular economies. Um, We're on the precipice, I guess, of a better world in a different century with, uh, uh, that's why we like the word Renaissance, with a new way of thinking, because we certainly can see where we've made mistakes in the past, where we're still making mistakes as we speak. But if you're going to be hopeful about it, um, then, then I, I would encourage, and I, this is the only way I, I believe for myself and for the, our, our groups that we have, We we, we demonstrate, let's, uh, going back to the do tank, let's just not wait for government to get it right. Mike, back to what you're doing and what your project is all about. We don't need to think about it anymore. We don't need to talk about it more. If we want to change our our, uh, our political systems, we can change them. We can change them at the local level. We can change them at the state level. We can change them at the national level. We can certainly change them at the global level because that's happening as we speak as right now. People are uh, recognizing that the world has to become, because of the pandemic, for example, there's a lot of mistakes that were made. Uh, in how we protect a global population. But we have more tools in the box than we've ever had before. Are we going to make mistakes like we've done in the past? Probably. But we'll discover those mistakes a lot faster than ever before. We'll we'll pivot and turn away from poor technologies or, or pre- previous technologies that were the crutch that allowed us to get here. But uh, the, ideally, you throw away the crutch because you have a diff- different way to walk. So here we are. Um, I, I just enjoy your passion Uh, Jan and what you've been accomplishing because it is you've said it in your different talks uh, the passion of a mom to protect their kids is is one of the strongest uh, forces on the forces on the planet and uh, changing you know just focusing on one thing let's just end hunger in our uh, world Um, we could do that next year we could do it certainly before the year 2030 and more importantly there's every kind of scalable replicable project out there in the communities you're working with that can uh, thrive under that n- new kind of uh, alignment of resources and thinking so let's let's get at it
3: yeah well i i would like to segue the phrase feed the world to heal the world through food through Certainly. healthy food and i would just like to put out there that 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 is that's the focus that in my opinion needs to happen and will will um it will be the two birds in one stone thing, right? If we're healing the world with healthy food, we're also feeling, feeding the world and we can accomplish both tasks when we have uh, good policies that will actually support um, regenerative or organic food supply and and a global food supply as well, right in, in the United States, but more localized. So I really appreciate what you're doing, A.G., with, AG, with supporting uh, community gardens and people growing food locally. That really is, I think, the answer. I'm so glad that you're doing that. We're trying to support people Doing that in the Neighborhood Food Network as well. So you can go to, I think we're wrapping up now, right? Pretty much. Yeah, we need to. Yeah, it's over to Yeah, <laughs> so I just want to encourage people to go to momsacrossamerica.org and to go to neighborhoodfoodnetwork.com to find out more about the food supply, about GMOs, about glyphosate, about the toxic chemicals in the food supply, and about the solutions, the organic. Food solutions are incredible over the organic trade association has said that's in 2018, I believe over 82% of households are now buying some organic food regularly. And that is great. And that's good news for farmers because then the farmers aren't being exposed to toxic chemicals. It's good news for their profit margins. They are more profitable when they are growing organic food. And, um, and we save tens of thousands of year. And I can see that for my family on each person in our family, By feeding them organic, my kids don't even have to go to the doctors anymore. We're saving so much money by eating organic. So um, I would just urge people to find out more about the benefits of organic and support your local farmers. Ask your local farmers to farm with regenerative organic practices and get out and learn how to grow food. And you can do that through programs like WOOF, Mm -hmm. Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. You can actually learn how to grow food. They can they will house you and feed you two meals a day. If you work for four or five hours a day on an organic farm near you, it's a whole network across the country and around the world. You can support your local CSAs, your consumer-supported agriculture uh, groups. You can uh, volunteer and get involved in things like what AG's, AG is doing with this incredible edible garden in Irvine. And um, and you can get involved in the food supply. And that's, that's why I got involved. I said, what if... I take on that. I'm the one to transform the food supply, not me by myself, not like ego thing, but I'm not going to wait for somebody else to do it. Right. So what if you, the viewer right now, says you're going to transform the food supply, whether it's through your choices every day by buying organic, whether it's volunteering, you know, growing food in a community garden, whether it's supporting your local school system to have organic food in your school, whatever that is. um, If you take on responsibility for the food supply, then we can transform the food supply together and we can feed the world and heal the world with regenerative organic food.
0: And I would add to that, the thing that we can all do is to get government to become a facilitator for the kind of changes that you both have articulated that we need. And so the question becomes, how can we get government to become that facilitator? We know that the D's and the R's aren't going away anytime soon, uh, but with new kind of political parties like the Common Sense Party and the Ford Party, and there's some others, that is forming. We can make our government begin to be accountable to the people for the results that we produce, that they produce with the policies. And the only way we're gonna be able to change the D's and the R's that have control of our system, they're not going away, is with a new kind of party inside of that system that will create the type of new incentives for them to have so that we can get government on the side of people and facilitate a healthy, much healthier families, individuals, communities, uh, and the world. So that's what I'm working on to contribute. You guys have been awesome. Uh, I hope it's a great example though of, of people unveiling different perspectives that can work together because we are all on the same page and you out in the audience, all the things that you've just learned from, from AG and from Zen. And hopefully uh, you can take the 10 minutes to change your registrations and help these new parties come into being so they can help facilitate the kind of changes that we need for the healthy communities. Steve, would you like to wrap up for us?
2: Yes. Thank you so much, Zen, and thank you so much, A.J., for being such good speakers and listeners and for creating a field of collaboration. Uh, This is so important that people who have different perspectives Speak their perspectives into a listening uh, that's not resistant, but uh, seeking the whole truth together, which is one of our key uh, goals at Front and Center. So thank you for being the perfect examples, of really starting that particular aspect of our work. I, I appreciate you both so much for what you're doing, for your care, for your activism, and for your your good nature in having this conversation. So thank you.
0: So if you're watching on YouTube or listening to our audio podcast, please subscribe, please like, and of course, please share with your friends and family. And if you would consider becoming a supporter so Steve and I can continue our work, please please do. You can do so by uh, going to frontandcenter.us or go search us on Rumble. But either way, uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, As our case is new, so so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. From political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, it's a long journey to the more beautiful and just world our hearts know is possible. Let's go there together. Thank you so much.